those in pre-K and kindergarten to Kids Connection. Uh, you guys can be dismissed now. It's right through these back doors in the room, uh, just right behind the sanctuary space. So pre-K and kindergarten, you can go to Kids Connection now. I would invite the rest of you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're in the middle of Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verse 35 today. I've gone ahead and mapped out the rest of the book of Mark, and it looks like the last Sunday in June uh, we will finish Mark's gospel. So uh, let's continue to push forward. That, that'll take us to the year and a half point uh, to get through these 16 chapters, and I'm excited about what God has taught us thus far and then certainly about what is ahead. So let's read. We're going to backtrack a couple of verses to verse 33, but we're going to dive right into this morning's text. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. Let me just push pause right there for a second, given the events of the week. We have a Savior who's mocked. And our salvation is actually wrapped up in him being mocked. They will mock him, and they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Now verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see what happened there in our text this morning? It happened. It happened again. For the third time in as many instances, for the third time in as many chapters, Jesus explains to his disciples that his purpose as their Messiah is to die. He did it in chapter 8, verse 31. He did it in chapter 9, verse 31. Then again, chapter 10, verse 32. And after each of these proclamations, the disciples fail in how they respond. In chapter 8, you remember Peter, he rebukes Jesus for saying he'll be killed. What does Peter, or what does Jesus then say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. I don't even want to look at you. Get behind me. And then in chapter 9, 
the news of Jesus' death, it, it, it appropriately, it stuns the disciples. But the very next scene, it has them discussing who is going to be the greatest among them. And now here in chapter 10, they've just heard the, the clearest, most detailed description of what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem there in verses 33 and 34. And this somehow compels James and John to request positions of honor, seats at the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. Do you get the impression that Mark is trying to tell us something about the discipleship progress of these disciples? That their discipleship is not really going anywhere. That in their minds, following the Messiah, that in their minds, it's going to mean glory for them. Status. Power, even. It seems that that's what Mark is trying to make clear to us. But let's not get too smug about this. Let's not get too critical of the disciples and be like, you know, how could these fools just keep missing it? Let's not say that. Because I think what we're supposed to be asking is, what am I missing right now? What, what is it that I'm missing right now? Let that question bounce around your brain as we work our way through this passage this morning. The disciples, they are clearly missing it. But I, I clearly miss a lot of things every day. Don't you? I can be a spiritual idiot at times. And that's what's going on here. The subject before us is greatness. We're going to look at it in three ways this morning. Greatness desired, greatness defined, and then greatness demonstrated. Let's look at greatness desired, verses 35 through 41. Jesus and the twelve, they are on the road to Jerusalem. They're coming up the slope from the Jordan River Valley. They're on Jesus' final trip to the city. And the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they make a statement to Jesus. It's a statement that if you've ever had a six- or seven-year-old child, you might be familiar with. They say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, when my kids come at me that way, it's because they've got something dubious on their mind, right? They want to put me on the hook for something, so they try to get the yes up front. It's a crafty way of asking a question. Say yes first, and then we'll ask our question. The disciples, essentially, they want a blank check from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't answer. He answers them with a question of his own. He says, what do you want me to do? He says, cut to the chase. What do you want? And here's where James and John reveal their hearts. Here they reveal why they continue to deflect Jesus' words about his death. They say to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. That's what's on their minds. Greatness, power, position, authority. And where did that idea come from? What motivated that question? Well, if we look at Matthew's account, you don't have to turn there. You might write down the reference Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 19, 28 is part of Jesus' response, remember, when Peter asks him that if, that if they've left everything and followed him, Peter asks him, what's in it for us? What's the payoff going to be? And Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, 
when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So James and John, they're just following up. They're, they're just circling back, like when you promise your kids ice cream, but you've got a lot of other stuff going on. Do your kids ever forget about the ice cream? No, never. The disciples, they're just circling back on that promise. And we learn, we, we learn also in Matthew that, that the mother of James and John is asking Jesus this question. She's asking Jesus to give her boys these seats of honor. Salome is, party, is playing the part of sort of a, a first century helicopter mom. You know, she's making sure that her boys get the favored spots. And that's because she knows her boys. We've seen these two brothers. We've seen these, these sons of thunder be very quick to dispense judgment. There's one place where they want Jesus to bring fire down from heaven to destroy a village that's rejected him. Remember that? And there's another place where John wants permission to rebuke and, and, and basically silence a man for doing works in the name of Jesus. These guys, these brothers, they are good at judgment. So when Jesus establishes his kingdom, they want powerful, judging, ruling positions. They're qualified. But Jesus says, not so fast, fellas. Before that future throne, you have to understand, you have to understand, I must sit on a different kind of throne. Jesus explains, it's a throne that involves a cup, and a baptism. That's why he asked James and John that next question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And here's what you have to see in that statement. He's not talking about a literal cup or a literal water baptism. The cup Jesus is talking about represents extreme suffering. And the baptism alludes to the full immersion in that suffering. So again, what is Jesus looking to? He's looking to the cross again. That's the glory in view for Jesus. That's the throne that Jesus has on his mind. How could it not be on his mind? So by mentioning the cup that Jesus has to drink and the baptism that Jesus has to undergo... Mark is underscoring this awesome truth that it's, that it's God's divine wrath that Jesus is going to be hit with on the cross. And anyone familiar with the Old Testament would have, would have made this wrath cup connection. Because it was all over the Old Testament. Psalm 11.6 says, Let him, him being God, rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 51. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah 49, 12. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go unpunished. 
you must drink from the cup. Habakkuk 2.16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The cup. So in verse 33 that we looked at last week that I read this morning, when Jesus said he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, remember I said that that was a statement he made to say that I am being subjected to God's wrath. I'm being turned over to God's wrath. That's what it means in the Bible to be handed over to the Gentiles. Now this statement about the cup continues that theme, that Jesus must drink the cup that comes with enduring the wrath of God. This is the very same reason he prays what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that prayer? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Let this wrath, let this suffering that's about to come upon me pass. And so now, for the second week in a row, we have the subject of God's wrath as it relates to the cross. And even though God's wrath isn't anyone's favorite subject, I think we need to pause here and explain a biblical doctrine. It's the doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation is a term repeated in both the New Testament and the Old And it's a term that basically means a sacrifice which turns away wrath. Now, let's make this very street level. If you're married, you have an idea of what propitiation is. Because men, you have, at one time or another, screwed up. Right? You said something you shouldn't have. You didn't say something when you should have. You forgot something important. We men, we do these sorts of things. And so this happens, and what do you husbands do when this happens? You bring home flowers. You do the dishes. You go out to her favorite restaurant. Your offering seeks to make amends with a wounded and frustrated wife. And what that is, what those things are, are propitious acts. You are seeking to propitiate your wife through that ritual flower bringing. You're seeking to avert wrath, (laughs) right? It's a smart move. It's it's not an original move, but it's a smart move. And sometimes it works, amazingly enough. So to propitiate, this is something you do toward another, and it's best described as a wrath-averting sacrifice. It's something you do to put your opponent at peace with you instead of at odds with you. You may remember Paul in Romans chapter 3, very, very prominent, famous text of Scripture. He speaks to the importance of propitiation. Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, comma, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In Romans 3, it's important to notice who is presenting the act of propitiation. Man is not presenting the propitiation in Christ's blood to God. Man is not offering the propitiating sacrifice. God is putting forward the propitiation. He's presenting his own son to himself as the wrath satisfying sacrifice. And this is because it is God's justice 
that God is satisfying on the cross. Essentially, God gave himself to save us from himself. And in doing that, the text says he can be both just and justifier. He can remain true to who he is in saving who we are. Listen to New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner. He says this so well. I'm going to put it up the screen here. He says, The Father, because of his love for human beings, sent his Son, who offered himself willingly and gladly. There it is. To satisfy his justice so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us so that in the cross both God's holiness and his love are manifested. It's a big quote. So then why so much emphasis this morning on this idea of propitiation? Why five minutes now as a sort of an aside with propitiation? Well, because it's a prominent theological term in both the Old and New Testaments. And because there's another aspect of the atonement that we're going to get to this morning, it's there in the final verse, verse 45. And I want this to serve as kind of a segue to that. But back to this exchange between the disciples, or James and John, and Jesus. Naively, these two brothers answer Jesus, and they say, yes, we're able to drink the cup. And so Jesus says to them, well, indeed you will. And Jesus was right. They would drink the cup of suffering, both of them. James would be the first of the disciples martyred. You can read about his death in Acts chapter 12. John would be the last living disciple, and his life as an apostle was marked by imprisonments and and exiles and, and physical torture. James and John would drink the cup. Not to the extent that Jesus did, but certainly in a way that identifies with what Jesus did. So let's then close this first point with verse 41. The other disciples, they catch wind of what James and John are asking for, and they go ballistic. Indignant is the word the text uses. And why are they so mad? They're so mad because James and John have beat them to the question. They want the seats of honor. James and John have called shotgun, essentially. And what happens when somebody beats you out of shotgun? I mean, you get mad. I want that spot. And just as an aside to that, the things that tick you off, they reveal what are, what's important to you. What makes you indignant can actually uncover the idols in your heart. If you get really upset when the market drops 300 points, well, might be an idol there. If you get really mad when your kid doesn't perform like you want them to perform, might be an idol there. If you lose sleep because of a loss of reputation, you might be an idol there. The other disciples, they're mad because the positions of greatness that they had their hearts set on, they might be taken. By James and John, by these two guys, we know these guys, there's nothing special about these guys. Everyone here is desiring greatness. Everyone except the guy who actually deserves it. Let's move to the second point. Greatness defined. 
greatness from greatness desired to greatness defined. I love how Mark records the next three verses. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for being petty and childish. He pulls them in close, and he teaches them. And he leads with an example of some people that these disciples would have despised, the Gentile rulers. Gentile rulers, and really all worldly rulers, they misuse their power and authority. They are abusive, and they take advantage of those beneath them. They exploit them. They selfishly look out for their own interests. This was the way of Herod Antipas. This was the way of Pilate and the Emperor Nero in Rome and all the other Caesars who came before him. Interesting phrase there in verse 42. Lord it over them. The Gentile rulers lord it over them. Lording is a, is a worldly way to operate. And it was a favorite term of Peter. Remember, Mark's gospel is essentially the collected preaching of Peter as he went through his ministry and preached the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Mark was there to record Peter's words. And lording it over was was a phrase that Peter used often. When he addressed the elders in one of his epistles, he tells the elders not to lord their authority over the congregation. Why? Because that is the way our world operates, not the way the church, not the way the kingdom operates. The world, when it uses authority, it abuses authority. Earthly rulers capitalize on authority. They manipulate it. They use it to serve their own ends. They throw their weight around. Reminds me of, this is a lighthearted illustration, reminds me of a conversation I had a few months back. It was with a man in our church. We were discussing the Renew campaign and the need to replace the carpet in this room, which then, if you're going to replace the carpet, you have to address the seating, which very quickly, as you know, enters us into a discussion on whether we should get new pews or new chairs. And I told the guy, much to his surprise, that that even though the Renew team, which I'm on, was, was proposing chairs, my preference was for pews. He was astonished. He said, well, why don't you throw your weight around? Those were his exact words. And I had to say, well, you know, there's factors like costs and flexibility and, and even comfort. You know, we feel like chairs might be the best, best way to go. But, but his thought was, man, you have authority, use it. You know, it certainly helped that my preference agreed with his preference. If it didn't agree, he probably wouldn't have encouraged me to throw my weight around. But Jesus says, the world operates in a way that you, my disciples, will not operate. So he redefines greatness by telling them, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servant. It's the Greek word diakonos. It means one who executes the commands of another. It was used of a servant to a king or a waiter at a table. It's also used in the New Testament of the deacon office in the church. Someone who cares for the needs of others. If you want to be great, be a diakonos. Be a servant. But then the Lord Jesus goes a bit further in verse 44 when he says, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. The word there for slave is not diakonos, it's the word doulos. It means bond slave. This is a different kind of servant. This is different from a voluntary servant. This is someone who has fully given themselves over to another person's will. 
This is someone who is so devoted to another that they have entirely, they've, they've disregarded their own interests. They're a slave. So in these two examples, servant and slave, Jesus is saying, consider everyone a person to be served. And not only that, consider everyone to be your master. So not only do, the, do you have the opportunity to serve, you have the obligation to serve. It's required of you. I don't know if you like the Lord of the Rings books. <clears throat> been some movies come out recently, The Hobbit and, and a trilogy and then another trilogy and just all sorts of trilogies happening. But Tolkien, the writer of those books, he writes about the heroes in those stories. And there's lots of characters in those stories, but there's a certain set of heroes. And he says, the heroes of this story are meek people who do not want power. They are interested in what is good and true. Here's the kicker. No matter what it costs them. Therein lies greatness. That's the greatness redefined. Sacrificial service. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He explains greatness further. This is our last point. By giving us a demonstration of what it looks like to be the servant and the slave of all. Verse 45. There's so much in verse 45. And in many ways, verse 45 is a summary of the, the last three sermons that have been delivered here at Enid MB. It's also, and I don't say this flippantly, it's also the most important single verse in the book of Mark, and maybe even the whole New Testament. Verse 45. And it begins with that phrase, for even the Son of Man came. There's three things about that phrase I want to point out. We're going to go backwards through it, starting with the word came. Came denotes pre-existence. For someone to come means they had, they had to be somewhere else. Jesus Christ came. He had eternally existed with the other two persons of the triune Godhead. But he came. He came. Second, he says that he's the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man who came. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And it points back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, that one like the Son of Man is coming. And in the book of Daniel, that is described as a glorious figure. It's the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, ultimately. And then the third point about this little phrase, for even the Son of Man came, is that word even. Even the Son of Man came. If there's anyone who deserves to be served, if there's anyone exempt from the posture of slave, it's the pre-existent, glorious Son of Man. But even He came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. And how would He manifestly do that? What did His service look like? second half of the verse, he would give his life as a ransom for many. So his life's purpose, the reason Jesus came was to be a sacrifice. It was to give up his life. Jesus came to be a substitutionary sacrifice. See that little preposition there, for, for many? It's a word that means instead of, or in place of, or substitute. Important word, because it drives home the fact that Jesus' death was in your place. That he died for you. For you. 
That is ultimate service, is it not? I mean, to die in someone's place, could there be a more profound act of service in the universe ever? No. Then what about the word ransom? I think we only think of that word today in terms of, of kidnapping and the movies and what we see happen there. But, but here it's translated from the, from the Greek word lutron, which means to buy back a slave or a prisoner. The ransomer would make a huge sacrificial payment that paid the debt of the slave in order to obtain his freedom. Jesus came to pay our ransom. So in saying what he said here, Jesus is declaring to us, I will pay the ransom that you could not possibly pay, and I will buy your freedom. So again, what's that pointing us to? It's pointing us to the cross. It's pointing us to the cross. Jesus cannot get the cross out of his view. Jesus bought our freedom from sin and death through his shed blood on the cross. And many, many modern critics would say to this point, they would think it's primitive. They would say, well, all the talk of of blood and sacrifice and, and, and payment, you know, if God were really loving, he would just forgive everybody and be done with it. Why, why did Jesus have to drink the cup of suffering and, and endure the wrath of God on the cross? Why did, why did he have to be this sacrifice for us to be saved? Here's, here's the beginning of an answer to that. The death of Jesus is not at odds with God's love, as if that sacrifice was somehow incongruent with a loving God. No. His death is where we see the mind-boggling extent of God's love. In other words, to really know God is loving, there had to be a sacrifice. And it had to be this way because, as Tim Keller says, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, only in the cross of Jesus Christ is the love of God to be found. And it's at this point where Jesus' demonstration of greatness intersects with his definition of greatness. Where his dying in our place connects with his call to discipleship, his call to sacrificial service. Have you ever tried to love someone who has deep needs? someone who's in trouble or or difficult or emotionally wounded. Have you ever tried that? Maybe you're doing that right now. And you know what? It costs you something, doesn't it? You can't love that person without taking a hit yourself. A transfer of some kind is required. Their troubles, their problems must transfer to you if you're to love them. That's what happens when you love a broken, needy person person. It costs you something. It takes some sacrifice. If you just hold on to your emotional comfort, if you avoid these types of people, they're going to ultimately sink. You'll fail to serve them. You'll fail to love them. The only way to love is through substitutionary sacrifice. Think about raising a kid. Child raising is one giant project in sacrificial service. You're constantly serving and tending to the needs of your child. When they're infants, you're up in the middle of the night. 
when they're in grade school, you're, you're reading to them constantly, they're teaching them responsibility, you're grounding them, whatever else. When they're adolescents, you're making tough calls to prepare them for life. You're spending a ton of money to, to send them to the best schools. As a parent, you're constantly making a sacrifice. Teenagers, look at your parents right now. They're identifying with what I'm saying. You know, and if those sacrifices aren't made, that child's going to suffer. They might end up emotionally damaged, and then they'll have to be the object of someone else's sacrifice as they grow into adulthood. If they're going to be loved, they're going to have to be sacrificed for. All real, life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Does the name Lily Potter mean anything to you? Lily Potter? She was, the, she was Harry Potter's mom. Harry Potter? That, that might resonate with you. I only read the first Harry Potter book, and I remember an important scene where, where Voldemort, you're not supposed to say his name, but I'm going to use it, Voldemort, he tries to kill Harry. But if you remember the book, you remember that he can't even touch him. He can't kill him. He tries to, but, but he's thwarted. And Harry doesn't understand this, so he goes to Dumbledore, and I don't need to explain who that is. He's just a guy who has all the answers. And he says to Dumbledore, he says, why couldn't Voldemort touch me? And Dumbledore says, Harry, your mother died to save you. To have been loved so deeply will give you some protection forever. And why is Dumbledore's statement there so moving? Because we know the concept is true. That sacrifice is at the heart of real love. That anybody who has ever done anything that made a difference for you, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, a spouse, anyone, they sacrificed for you in some way. They stepped in. They endured some hardship so you would not get hit with it yourself. Now, think about it this way. If some human being in our lives could prove their love to us by serving and sacrificing for us, if some human being could do that, how much more does God the Father demonstrate his love by serving us through the sacrifice of his son? How much more? You know, as we talk about aspects of the atonement, substitution and propitiation and, and, and ransom, these, these are really just different ways of understanding God's love towards sinners. And here's what else you need to know. God doesn't love you more now that you're sort of pulled together and you're this cleaned-up Christian who tithes and makes it to church every now and again. No. And converse to that, he doesn't love you less if you're a twisted, messed-up failure. Huh. And that's because his love, it isn't about your worthiness or unworthiness. His love doesn't work that way. His love is rooted in the sacrificial action of Jesus. Romans 5, 6, Paul writes it. For why we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love for you, your worth to him, is the same love, is the same worth 
that he feels toward his son, toward Jesus. You are worth what it cost to save you. And what it cost to save you was the glorious, perfect, divine Son of Man. How much are you worth to God? How much are you loved? Consider what it costs to ransom you. Consider how he has served you. Consider the way he was sacrificed for you. And then, and then use that as fuel to go and to serve other people. Let's pray together. Father, we love you today. And we love you because it's very, very, very clear that you've loved us first. You've shown us love. You're the standard of love. You, you take the concept of love places we never would have taken it ourselves. So God, here we see love as, as bleeding sacrifice for us in our place. God, help us to never doubt, never question your love. In the face of what we know you've done in Christ, you love us more than we can even comprehend, more than we can even scratch the surface of. God, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ or never understood the concept of him going to the cross for them, dying for their sin, dying in their place, serving them in a way that no one else ever has served them, God, I pray that today you would draw them to yourself. That they would seek someone out that could maybe help explain those things. Or they would just fall on their knees and they would pray to you. And they would trust in you. And be saved by you. God, I I pray that we could be a people that take these words to heart. That we could be disciples in the order of what Jesus is describing here. That we could follow our master in the way of sacrificial service. We need grace in that. We need mercy in that. Empower us to do that by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time together. It's been a blessing for all of us. In Jesus' name.